I wasn't doing five or $800,000 in 12 months because I didn't know what I was doing when I was wholesaling. I just didn't know how to scale that, how to get myself out of the day-to-day of the business because that was always my goal. Welcome to the Seven Figure Flipping Podcast. Seven Figure Flipping is on a mission to help serious investors do more deals, make more money, work fewer hours, and get their lives back. Here's your host, Seven Figure Flipping CEO, Bill Allen. Hey everybody, welcome to the Seven Figure Flipping Podcast. This is Bill Allen, and today I've got an incredible show for you guys. We've got um, a wholesaler and flipper from Canada. So doing a lot of high volume wholesaling and flipping in lots of different areas outside of his main metro. And he's been growing and scaling his business over the past few years. I got a chance to meet him at Flip Hacking Live a couple of years ago where he joined our eight-figure flipping group. And uh, he's just an incredible guy. He's got to spend some time in, in South Africa with him on safari. He's got a lot of things going on in his personal life right now, which I'm sure he's going to share. And so I want to welcome to the podcast, Luke Boyron. Luke, welcome to the podcast, man. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Yeah, I, you know, I'm excited to talk about it today because we've just come out this, we've just come out of this series uh, right after Gino Wickman's uh, podcast that we did, and we went through the six essential traits of a entrepreneur and kind of asking our question, that question of ourselves, like, are you an entrepreneur? And going through all of these different traits that we know that we need to have in order to hit the levels. And there's not many people in the group, I think, that are as aggressive and entrepreneurial as you. So it's exciting to, to kind of transition there. And what I want to talk about a little bit today, and I'm sure we'll dive into it, is, um, is growing a team and what that looks like in today's environment. So a lot of people are asking me, hey, you got this big payroll, got a lot of overhead, and I was growing and scaling for a long time and then kind of hit this almost freeze right now. We're recording this on April 20th, so it'll go out in a few weeks, but um, everything that's happening with the coronavirus. So I'm sure we'll get into that. Before we do, let's start with, uh, tell everybody a little bit about you and uh, kind of your background and how you got into real estate and then how you kind of found us at uh, Seven Figure Flipping. All right. Um, So I grew up uh, in a real estate family. My dad was a commercial real estate agent, uh, self-taught. You know, he quit school when he was 14 left home when he was 16 and uh, came to Canada from France and got into real estate, became a real estate agent, commercial real estate, invested in commercial real estate. So uh, in 2007, when I was 18, I had saved up enough money and I bought my first rental property. And that was when I started undergrad. So uh, through undergrad, I was fixing up the property. I was renting it up by the room, eventually sold it. At the time I started law school, I did a joint program, did my law school and my MBA. And then um, when I finished law school, I got called to the bar and I didn't want to stay in law. So, you know, I always thought that I needed to have a profession so that I could buy rentals on the side because that was the only way I saw as being a real estate investor. But then I realized if I wanted to be an active real estate investor, I could flip houses and make it a full-time job. And I was so passionate about real estate. I just, I grew up surrounded by it. I loved it. It was, it was what I wanted to do. So I got into flipping houses. Um, and I was listening to, you know, this podcast, you know, just understanding, because I didn't know anyone who flipped, you know, maybe people bought a house every few years and renovated it while living in there and living in flips. But I didn't know anyone who really flipped a lot of houses. You know, when you heard, you hear about Justin formerly, you know, flipping a hundred houses, you're like, how's that possible? That's not possible. So I was listening to this, you know, uh, he, trying to understand how I could do this and how I could do it in Canada because I have my own limited beliefs. I'm like, oh, Americans, you know, they can do it there, but that, this would never work in Canada. 
So um, yeah, I had my own limiting beliefs to go through, but I got into this. So full-time in 2016, end of 2016, started flipping houses. I think I flipped about 17 in my first year. And, um, and then I started wholesaling as well because I, I was never the best project manager. So I was managing my own flips. Um, the accounting was terrible. <laughs> Things were taking a lot longer than it should have. We were making money because I was good at buying the houses. And so I started wholesaling a few and my first ever wholesale deal, I wholesaled it for $70,000. Whoa, 70,000? My first wholesale deal. I had seven rentals on the go, couldn't handle another flip. And I almost didn't go to the appointment. It was my wife, Jess, who's, uh, she's now pregnant with our first child. Um, she was like, no, this is, this sounds like a good deal. Go, go on the appointment, go buy the house. So I did, bought it, got a great deal. And then next week I found someone who wanted to buy it and they, they paid me 70 grand for the contract. So that was my first wholesale deal. Okay. Well, I want to ask you a question about that because I remember my, my first wholesale deal, I made 10,000. I actually made 9,900. So I, I used a trick back then where I could get the assignment fee off the HUD for a hundred bucks. My lawyer worked something out. And so like I w- at that time, I didn't even think it was possible. You talk about limiting beliefs, right? I didn't think it was possible at that time for me to wholesale a deal for 70,000. So how did you know that you could do that and you didn't settle for 10 or 20 or just text your best friend and say, Hey, you know, um, would you buy this for $20,000 more? Um, yeah, I, I think, I think I had bought some deals from other wholesalers. Um, not, not paid anything close to that. The thing was, I knew I got a really good deal and I actually asked the guy for a hundred grand and in his mind, it was also sticker shock. Both of us, I was like, this is impossible, but let me ask for it. And so we sat down at McDonald's, negotiated, and I agreed to take 70. And I would definitely get, like nowadays with the, our dispositions process, I'd probably get over 100,000 for it. He flipped it and made over 100,000. So the deal was there. It was a very good deal. Okay, so you didn't know that you couldn't do that. So you just kind of went for it, went all out, and, uh, and it ended up at $70,000. Awesome. Okay. So you said you were listening to the podcast and then what you came to flip hacking live and that's how you kind of got introduced to us. Yeah. So I was flipping, I was wholesaling. I hired, um, I was trying to figure everything out on my own because I've been so skeptical of all the groups, all the gurus, you know, I went to one of those weekend pitch things with, uh, what was the um, flipper flop stars? They advertised with them. I went on a Saturday and it was just a huge pitch fest. Everyone was running to the back of the room and I'm like, what is what are people thinking? Why would they sign up for this stuff? It's so obviously like just not genuine. Um, and so I was just super skeptical of everything. And I had an acquisition rep. I had an assistant. We were doing like the, right before I went to Flip Hacking Live, we had, I don't know, we were somewhere between five and $800,000 in the previous 12 months um, in, in gross profits. And I knew I wanted to grow, but I didn't know how to do it alone. And so when I left, my wife said, you know, don't let them convince you to join. Like you're not going to get conned into joining some group. Um, and when I was there, I called her and I said, this is the real deal. I really want to join this so I can grow. Um, because that's what it was. I, you know, I wasn't doing five or $800,000 in 12 months because I didn't know what I was doing when I was wholesaling. I just didn't know how to scale that, how to get myself out of the day-to-day of the business because that was always my goal and that's still working towards, but in a much better position now. I was working my ass off all the time, um, constantly working. And 
I didn't know how to get out of that and how to hire the right people. Cause I was, I was just guessing when I was hiring. Um, actually when I was there, I knew like, I knew going there that I had to fire the current assistant I had. So I really only had one good person on my team, my acquisition rep, who's still with me today. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I went there, I could tell, you know, all the coaches were just such like real genuine people. They're not trying to scam you. The biggest thing for me too, is all these people who are coaching because they can't do, you know, it's like you go to these guru seminars and they're, they're not making money in real estate. They're making money teaching you about real estate. None of them are making money in real estate. So it's, you know, you're going there and I met you there and you know, you, you're, you went on stage, told your story, how you did, you know, how, how quickly you grew your team, how you hired everyone, how you didn't want to hire someone in the first place. And Andy told you, you're going to have to hire to grow. Um, I went there and I'm like, okay, I, I, I got to do this. I, I got to join and uh, called my wife. We agreed. I signed up and uh, my first event in person was in Keystone. Nice. Okay. So let's go back to that time. So you were figuring things out on your own. You were doing 500 to 800,000. You had an acquisitions rep and an assistant and you knew that the assistant wasn't the right fit at that meeting. So, so you joined the group and then I want to dig into kind of like hiring in the process from here because it was just you and, the, and two other people. And now you're going towards, um, where, where are you now? Maybe let's just, let's fast forward and say, what does your company look like now? And then we'll go back and say, how did we get there? Okay. Yeah. We have 17 people right now in the company. Um, we did, I think our 2019 was about three and a half million, um, mostly wholesale fees and gross profit. Um, and yeah, so we're at 17 people with our newest hire that we just hired last week. Okay. So 17 people and we talked pre-show, most of those people are W2 employees and there's, it's a mix of commission and kind of salaried staff members, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. So how did you go? Like, what were some of the steps that you took from that first flip back in live event to growing to a company like this? Granted, it's been about a year and a half, right? Yeah. So the steps, the first three months of being in the group, I did very little with it. I was, uh, were too busy to, so I'm like, I sign up, I, I look in, in the materials online and I'm like, okay, I don't have time to go through all of this and do all of these steps. I was, I spent maybe three months until I went to Keystone in person, just kind of dealing with the fires that were in front of me all the time and not taking the steps I needed to do. And also, I think I am in a way that I have very, the typical entrepreneur where, you know, I'm always thinking of a million ideas, but I'm not the best at getting that detailed work done. Um, so I, I was, I, I wanted to wait until I had, you know, a hot, proper hiring training manual done before I hired because I, I, had, I had failed uh, in hiring multiple times in the past. And so I wanted to have all that done. And I went to the Keystone meeting and I was talking to the coaches and uh, they, they were telling me, well, um, one, one of them told me, maybe you're not the right person to do this. Maybe what you need to do is hire a sales manager who has experience in hiring and training people. And I've, now I've grown a lot as as someone who now I know so much more about hiring, about using the right tools, um, using, you know, culture index, for example, and even just the disc profile, at least it's a little more basic, but at least using that to understand people's motivations and their, their skills. Um, it helps so much in getting the right person into a role. Um, and even just understanding how to motivate them when they are in the role. Um, because 
it, it's an understanding that everyone's a little different and you have to play with the right, like the, my two main acquisition reps right now, we, the 17th was our third acquisition rep, which she hasn't started yet. But the two acquisition reps, I have very different motivations, very different styles. And so I need to make sure I'm motivating them in the right ways and using the right language even with them. So uh, yeah, Keystone, it was hire a sales manager. Well, I did that. I, I put out an ad. I got very lucky. I got an awesome sales manager. I did the culture index, looked at his profile, understood from that what his advantages would be and where he had issues. And I hired someone with a great experience in hiring and training people. He had hired and trained you know, hundreds of people. Um, so I, I brought someone on with a ton of trainings. I brought someone on to fill in my weaknesses. And now with him, I've worked with him to hire all of these people on the team, grow it out. I always had the vision for the company, but I needed people in there to start implementing everything I wanted to do. Okay, so in the first three months felt like it was dr drinking from a fire hose. There's a lot of information there, so you were just kind of trying to digest that. Came to the first meeting, so you started to understand what the group was all about, some of the, the materials, taking some of the things and implementing them yourself, uh, but realizing, like saying, hey, I'm not going to hire until I build out an entire training manual, the structure of it. I can create the system to hire people and do it the right way. So you're kind of kicking that can down the road, knowing you need to do it, but saying, I'll get to it when, you know, um, it's interesting because you, I, I heard somebody talk about the manana principle, like I'll get to it t tomorrow, manana. It's always the next day. Right. And us as entrepreneurs, that it, that is one of the like most challenging things that we have is this manana effect, like tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. And I, I still do it on a regular basis. It's the things that I don't really want to do. Cause you said, you talked about the weaknesses and it's the kind of stuff that I just, I just don't want to get to like, I, it's not things that I'm excited about and hiring yeah. is and, and built really the hiring isn't that bad, but it's building out the train, like the system and process. I, I'll say you're hired, here's your salary, but then like getting their W nine and on, or their I nine and W four and onboarding them and getting their, all the administrative stuff about it drives me nuts. And it's probably the same way with you. Even just for hiring, you know, what I would have done before, what I was doing before is I throw up an ad, I'd look at a few resumes, bring a few people in. And if someone seemed good enough, I'd fill the seat. It wasn't about like really looking for those eight players or really taking the time to hire. But, you know, we all know how much it costs you to put the wrong hire into a company. And that's what I was doing. Um, and even my first hire, I hired an assistant who was with me three months before she quit. And for her, it was like drinking from the fire hose. This was before I joined the group. I just tried to throw a little bit of everything at her. I'm like, oh, well, I'm doing all of these things. Why can't you? Here's a bunch of things for you to do. Didn't work. So actually, I then stayed on, did all that stuff, hired just the acquisition rep. I said, your job, you're taking the phone calls. So he was being lead manager and acquisition rep. You're taking the phone calls. You're going on appointments. This way I can increase my marketing. I'm going to take care of everything else. And then I've hired other people. Once I've had him trained up, I've hired other people to start taking those other hats off of me. Okay. So then, so your key hire in this case was that sales manager, which it sounds like, so I'm guessing that you had a bit of a sales, uh, you had like, that's where you needed help was in sales, like hiring sales reps and acquisitions people and disposition. Is that right? Um, I think that, that was part of it. It was just hiring in general and it was being able to kind of supervise the acquisition reps. So some accountability on the acquisition side. Yes. Okay. So bringing that guy in and then 
let's maybe let's go to the point where you've actually built out a system for hiring because you said something just now like it costs a lot of money to hire the wrong person. And Nate and I just gave a presentation recently and we did some research and there was a paper that was written that talks about it, it costs you 15 times their annual salary to hire the wrong person. One five, 15 times. So you could do the math. If you got a $300,000 or $30,000 a year employee, it can cost you $450,000 to hire the wrong person potentially. So I don't want to scare people away from hiring because in the beginning I would, I hired that for, I did the same thing you did, put up an ad, take some resumes and throw them in there. And it was, it was what I needed at the time. Now we have a system around it. We have a, an actual structure for it. We, ha, we can, you took, mentioned a players also. We're really, we turned down a players because we just hired three a plus players recently. And I saw the sheet that we all put together and it said a, 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 a plus, a plus, a plus, plus. Like these are the people that we're hiring. We're basically saying no to people that most, most companies, that would be their best salesperson in the company or their best employee. And we've gotten our process down. So what I want to do is jump into that because I think what that'll do is it'll help a lot of folks that are listening, figure out, you know, how they get to that point of hiring the right person. Um, because a lot of people think that I can't afford to hire a players because I don't have a huge salary to pay them. Um, a players pay for themselves. And a lot of times you'd be surprised. They want to work for a good company. Um, there's a lot of diamonds in the rough out there. There's a lot of people that will are looking for a 30, 40, $50,000 job without the thing that I find with a players is you don't want to put a ceiling on them. Don't cap them somewhere because if you cap them, then they're not going to see an opportunity there. I'd love to bring in an a player for 35, $40,000 and let them grow into a hundred thousand dollar role down the road and show them how capable they are. So what's, what's your system look like? What are some of the things that you guys do or did at that time you hired the sales manager? Like what did he bring in there? And now what are you guys doing? Yeah, well, I guess I'll talk about what we're essentially doing now. Um, we post either directly on indeed or shoot, there's another place we post. Um, Anyways, it also pushes onto Indeed. I forget. I can't think of it right now. But um, we post directly on Indeed, and um, we'll filter through all the candidates we get. We will look through their resumes very quickly. And uh, I know, I think you you use the profiling much more uh, often than I do. What we do is anyone who's going to come in for an in-person interview has to fill out a disk profile. Um, for our more key hires, because we've never signed up for Culture Index and Predictive Index ourselves, we've... Um, Asked for, for key hires, I've asked uh, other members of the group who use those services to, to help us out um, on, on looking at them, uh, on, on running them through their system. Um, but for, you know, for most of our hires, we just run them through the desk profile. So uh, look at their resume, um, you know, narrow it down drastically from there, then get on a phone call with them. And again, all of this right now, my former sales manager now, he's my COO, Corey. So Corey posts the ad, he vets the resumes, he calls them on the phone, and then he narrows that down and sets up in-person interviews. And so what, what happens with the in-person interviews is um, Corey will do a preliminary interview, and if he likes them, he'll call me into the office to continue the interview. And so if I don't hear from him, um, he didn't like them. So that's a really <laughs> useful thing for me right now. It saves a lot of my time. If he brings in someone doesn't like them in person, I never have to talk to them or spend my time meeting with them. Um, so, so I like that, but I do, I do like the first time they're there in person to meet with them myself to also see if I agree with his judgment on, on that person for that role. 
Okay, so just so I understand, uh, and I'll read this back to you. So Indeed, and then you get their resumes. You'll kind of, uh, Corey will screen through their resumes. Then he'll do a pre preliminary short phone interview to see if they're qualified. And that's probably like on and off real quick. How long would you say that phone interview is? Any idea? Um, if they're bad, three minutes. If they're good, 15. Okay, so short phone interview. Then they'll get the personality profile. So di if it's not a key hire, disk test. And then, uh, then they'll do an in-person interview. If it's going well, then he'll call in you, the CEO, to continue that interview. And then are you hiring them right there on the spot? Or are you then kind of getting together, the two of you, to decide who your top uh, candidates are for that position? And then what's the next step? Yeah, so usually we'll, we'll let them know we'll make a decision. You know, if we interview someone, we'll make a decision within the next week or so. And um, we'll let them know, you know, if we like them, we'll let them know that... Uh, we will be letting them know by, let's say, the end of the week, um, whenever we, we know we have other interviews scheduled. But we typically try never to hire someone without having at least interviewed other people, um, even if their, you know, their resume is great. Um, our we're expanding to the Montreal market. So the person we just hired, it took us. We've been trying to hire for that role since October. We just wow. didn't want to hire the wrong person into that role. So that's like six months just yeah. to give everybody uh, an idea of that. So, uh, and, and you and Corey are then kind of crunching them down and deciding, or is it just kind of a, uh, you two just having a conversation and saying, I really love them, let's bring them on. Yeah, so, so lead manager, for example, will be like lead intake. We'll have a lot more candidates, that'll happen much faster, like within two weeks, right? We'll interview a bunch of people within a week and let them know at the end of the week. So yeah, there we'll sit down and we'll say, okay, like I was in on these two or three interviews, they were good. Here's, here's why we think this person is good or not. Um, and then this is the person we want to hire. Uh, and also sometimes it comes down to their expectations too. Like you might have someone who seems great, but their expectations on what they should be making or, or how much they should be working is not, doesn't fit into what we want. Um, so we might choose someone who maybe isn't, doesn't have the same level of experience, for example, but has a much better attitude that's going to fit in better with our culture. So, so we, we consider that, but then like the, the Montreal rep, it was finding the right person. We've interviewed a lot of people that was kind of like a, they're okay. They're good. They're not great. And we want it. We're going to a new market. Um, there's some complexities there because it's a very French speaking market, which we don't have in our other markets at all. So there was that aspect of it to add in. So we really needed the right hire. So that was continually looking for the right person. And then when we finally found the right person, it wasn't evaluating them against anyone else. We just uh, agreed that this was the right person for, for our company. Nice. So we're, we're pretty similar. My, my, our process is we put everything on Indeed now, and then we, we write that post towards the personality profile. So even backing up a little bit, we kind of define the personality profile that we want, and then we'll write adjectives in there that attract those personality profiles. We post on Indeed, and then we look at the personality profile before we look at the resume. So since we do have access to some like the culture index, we run them through there. We look at their profile and then we'll look at their resume. They have to have, you know, they have to have sales in their resume if we're going to hire them for salespeople. Um, so then we look at that, but then we do the initial phone interview and then we'll do a more deep, deeper phone interview. And then we'll do a, like a zoom chat like this. We're all virtual. So we don't have an office in person, stuff like that. Um, and then, I really don't get on the call with them anymore unless they're a key hire. So Nate pretty much handles all of that. So if it was a lead man, a lead rep, 
our lead intake manager would, would interview and then Nate would do the final interview. Uh, now if it was a, like a managerial level position, then I would probably talk to them just to see if they're a core value fit at the end, just to put my stamp of approval. But they've already have talked to three different uh, managerial level people inside the company before I would talk to them. So um, the only way they wouldn't get through me would just be if there's something that really stood out. Like I, uh, it just didn't see that there was some red flag that popped up, but um, I haven't really talked to anybody in a, in a while now. It's probably been like nine months since I talked to somebody and we've been hiring a lot of folks. So Nate, but Nate is pretty much taken over for that for me. And I'm sure Corey will for you at some point very soon, I would guess. Um, so, okay. What are some, what are some kind of like lessons learned that you felt over the past year and a half of hiring a lot of people? So what are some things that you, you maybe would go back and do differently or what are some things that you think you guys did really well? Um, so, so I also want to add, you can get lucky. Like my first, now my first acquisition rep was still with me. He had no sales background. He did video editing before, and he was kind of looking to get into wholesaling. And that's how I found him. I, I post a, a RIA meetup in Toronto. And, um, that's where I met him and ended up hiring him. He had no sales background. He's done amazing, but I would never hire him again um, because his lack of sales background. If just in hindsight, it worked out great. Um, but knowing what I know now about hiring, it's taking way too much of a risk. So definitely um, experience matters a lot. Personality profile matters a lot. And the two need to work together. Um, my COO, who's done amazing things for my business, he he's, has a little bit of a higher, uh, a higher eye like in the disc, let's say, than you normally hire for a sales manager. He's a little higher on the interpersonal level, which can be risky because someone with that profile may end up talking too much not really getting work done because all they want to do is talk to people. They're too nice to people, that kind of thing. Um, however, when you mix that in with, with their experience and what they've done, um, you know, he worked, you don't work 10 years as a sales manager at a company um, unless you're, and grow a massive sales team unless you're actually good at the role. So when you combine those two together, um, that, that's when you find the right thing. Experience mixed with personality, but one doesn't work alone. And one can counteract the other to a certain extent. Just can't be the wrong personality type and it can't be the wrong experience, but a balance of the two can help find the right person. So I would say that's a big part of it. Um, well, let, let me jump in there the because roles. let yeah. me jump in there because I think there's, there's some people who may have just like keyed off in that. And I know I did because you said uh, you could get lucky, but you wouldn't do it again. And yeah. I think it's really important to know that because once you have a, a, a process set up, it can be, it can seem attractive to go around your process to bring somebody else in. When you don't have a process, like you, you might have found that like needle in a haystack, right? And you, like you said, got lucky. But when you might miss out on that lucky, like the oddball home run or the perfect shot, when you have a process set up, I might have, I may have weeded that person out because they didn't have the personality profile or the resume. However, um, what's going to happen is I'm going to have something that's repeatable and the, the I'm going to have a lot more good candidates, that, like great candidates than I would if I was just swinging from the hip, like shooting from the hip, like you were doing before. So it, when you think about it, you, you might lose, you might miss out on that, that, you know, one in a hundred kind of candidate, but you'll get the other one, you get the cream of the crop that you want from the rest of them. So the likelihood of you succeeding is a lot higher with an actual process set up. So I've seen that too in my business. And the other thing that you mentioned is like Corey's personality profile might not exactly fit 
And, and frankly, if you had a pro process like mine is set up, you probably, he would have never made it through the screening of mine. So what I found is um, if you already have somebody on the team and they don't fit and it's not right, like based on what you see on paper, that's like the 90% solution a lot of times. So we, we did an event called Dash 2 where we did the CEO, COO event. And I had a couple of people come and their COOs or the people they have in their organization didn't fit the exact mold of what we were talking about. And so they started freaking out a little bit. I remember having conversations after the event with some people. And um, I, said, I said, look, it, this is not like black and white. Okay. It's not like this or nothing. This person is completely capable of doing the job. They've done a great job. You give them the opportunity, see how they do. Um, all we're saying is like the 90% solution is, is potentially this. There are plenty of people that can do the role. Just my question and challenge to them is if their personality profile doesn't fit, like how long are they going to do it for before they don't love it anymore or they get burned out or they feel like they're, they're doing something outside of what they really want to do. So I, I think, you know, all of these things that we're talking about, this is the system that we set up, the process that we go through to make it repeatable and make it comparing apples to apples and not apples to oranges or apples to bananas because then everybody's getting different questions, everybody's going through a different process. So we, we create it so it's easy for us. Like this system creates, it's, it spits out top producing talent on a regular basis and it's repeatable. So anyway, what are some other lessons where, I just wanted to jump in there because I think you said a couple things that, um, that I've seen in my experience over the past few years and, and even people that we've worked with that have been you know, concerned that the personality profile doesn't match what we think it should, right? But they are doing a phenomenal job and they still are. Like there's the people, I mean, it's been almost, almost a year since we did that event and maybe six months now. And the people are doing are doing great jobs in those businesses. So, um, what are some other lessons learned and things that, um, like maybe some cautionary tales or something that you would give uh, some things you screwed up? Well, I was just gonna, I was just gonna mention, I was actually gonna use those words, cautionary tales. Um, <laughs> I can think of two candidates uh, end of last year, or two two uh, employees that we had hired. Um, one was an assistant that I'd hired kind of before I really implemented the, my, my current process. And she, her attention to detail wasn't, it bothered me because it wasn't as good as it needed to be. And certain things that I considered important were getting missed. But she was also helping on some projects where we kind of needed her, didn't want to train someone else. So she was kind of deemed good enough. And then we had another person um, who we brought her on when we were, when we were growing quickly and we were setting up like, our CRM and um, integrations and all this stuff. And she was, um, she was Eastern European um, in Canada on a work visa and had a good like tech background. So we kind of brought her in for essentially IT and integration, that kind of support to do that work for us. And we were hoping she'd go on to be able to manage more projects and things like that once we were more set up on our systems. And so she was with us for, I don't know, six months. Um, and we, we knew it would end, like where we wouldn't need her for that kind of stuff. And we realized while she was working there, yeah, kind of good enough. It was harder also to, I think, um, tell some of the, in the interviews, like there was a little bit of a language barrier and we weren't sure how, how significant that would, that would be. Um, but anyways, what happened with these two is they kind of both started working off of each other. They, both of those people asked for raises and none of our good people who are doing awesome ever need to ask for a raise like our our main lead intake like the manager of our lead intake we've given her multiple raises without her ever asking because she's so good you know and our 
um, our commission people never ask for a raise because they make a lot of money on commissions when they're good. Um, they don't need to ask for a raise. So these people came to ask for a raise and because they were only like good enough, they weren't great. They weren't people that like we would have hired again if we knew. We didn't want to give them raises. So we said, you know, no, we're not going to give you a raise right now. And they both started talking. They started talking to uh, our dispositions person saying, you know, they'll never value you properly. They'll never pay you what you're worth. And they really started kind of poisoning the well or trying to poison the well because they were bitter. Um, and they were bitter because they weren't good at their jobs. So we didn't value them. We value all the people who are really good in our company. And they weren't. So um, the lesson there was we knew they weren't great for the role and we should let them go sooner before we gave them a chance to start poisoning a well and causing problems for the rest of the team. And uh, they both left around the same time and we're so much better off without them. So what, what stopped you from letting them go early, earlier than that? Uh, it was, I guess, an element of laziness. It was, you know, we have to retrain someone in the same role. Um, they're kind of doing the job good enough. So, you know, is it worth going through the whole process, firing them? I knew one of them needed the money, um, but is it worth the whole process firing them to what get someone who's 20% better? You know, because that, that's the difference between good and great. It's not... It's not like someone's at 20% productivity and someone else is at 95. It's someone's at 70% where you'd like them to be. That's still not, 70% still sucks. It's just, it's not good. So um, the, the thing was they were, they were getting some of the work done we needed. And because we'd grown so quickly, we needed bodies doing the work. And we didn't want to take the time to get rid of them, train someone who would be better, like bring someone in who is better, do that whole hiring process, and then train them properly. Um, yeah, I think it was just, we were busy with a lot of work and I'll say, you know, a bit of laziness. We didn't want to go through it. Well, I think, I think uh, we've all been, we've all been there. Like if you have anybody that works for you, you know that it's a lot of work to bring somebody else on, rehire them, train them, do all those things, go out on the search again, all that stuff. And so a lot of times we accept uh, mediocrity. We accept the B and C players because you're like, just like you said, you're, there's a body in there. It's like a warm body in there doing, doing the work. That's what we need. And, um, but you mentioned a couple of things and I, I use this term a lot in my company too, that poison the well kind of thing is you get the, what they do is they start spreading, like they just spread negativity and they even start this like inner, inner, um, office politics stuff like this, um, these, these rumors or they'll start. And what they do is they start poisoning the A players and it's, uh, we, we used a quote in one of the presentations recently. It's, uh, it's um, not what you preach, but what you tolerate, right? And so what happens is you start tolerating, okay, good enough. Like you said, good enough is exactly what you said. Red flags are starting to go up. And what happens is the really incredible workers, they start seeing that you're tolerating that and they go, I don't know why I work so hard when, I mean, I could, I, I could, look what they do over here. They don't actually uh, do what they say they're going to do. They say that this person's not living up to their full potential and they're letting them stay around. Like, and they just look at it like it's just kind of a hobby. It's not just this professional uh, team, right? So I look at it as a professional team, like a Super Bowl winning, winning team is what I want to create. And we got to put our money where our mouth is and we got to make sure that the A players, because A players don't want to play with B and C players. A players want to play with other A players. So you're going to start like averaging and leveling up your company if you don't get rid of those people and get rid of them quick. I mean, you took six months to hire a sales rep now. I'm sure you don't tolerate this stuff anymore. And you started to learn the fact that 
you've got to bring people in. We, we will all lift up to that, that highest level and the people in your company start averaging out at some point. And you want them to average out at an A, A plus, like really high level. And when that happens, the other thing we don't think about is our workload goes down. We don't have to manage those people. We don't have to put up with the crap. We don't have to deal with all the problems that they bring because those people that are poisoning the well are just bringing problems. It's just constantly something going on. Like you mentioned, they need the money. There's all this stuff. They always have some problems, something that comes up that you have. It's, it's your fault, not their fault, things like that. So I, I've seen it in, in, in my company too. It's, oh, it can be really tough. But then you think about the pain of, putting up the ad, hiring somebody, but just think about the future. Like it's all about the future, the future state, the what if. Imagine yourself putting that rock star person in that doesn't have to come to you every five seconds for requests and information or your team or like your management management team. And all they do is bring down everybody else's workload. So if you can get rid of that and kind of cut off that poison, things are going to get a lot better. Even if you might have to jump in and do a little bit extra work for a couple months of finding that person, hiring them and bring them on. It's, it's well worth it. I've been there too. Um, okay. So there's probably like, you have 17 people that work for you. I got 15 people that work for me in this company. Um, they're probably wondering like how we're coping with all this stuff. There's a lot of people out there in the, in the world right now that are firing their staff. They're shutting their doors. Uh, people are saying that real estate is, they're not sure where it's going in the future. So how are you handling that? And like you were growing and scaling up to this point of, you know, the end of March, middle of March, whenever it was that um, all this stuff started happening with COVID-19 and coronavirus and things. And so like, how did you react to that? And what are some of the things that you're thinking about going forward? So going into this, we've been because we're, we've been growing a lot, we've really bloated our like company level um, expenses and, and, you know, we have CO operations manager, uh, you know, TC was a recent hire. Um, there are, we have a development manager. We have an in-house accountant. Um, so kind of company level we're bloated so that we can handle growth. But with the way the market's going, how much do you really want to grow? Um, Right. So, cause we've been, we had two acquisition reps until last week and we wanted to get to four and be able to handle all of that volume uh, properly. So we needed the management level to get there. So we bloated up this level. I am, I want to do everything I have to do to keep the business alive, but we're not at the point anywhere close to the point where I'm worried about losing the business, nothing close to that. So what's important until then, which I don't think we will get to that point, but the most important thing now is ensuring that our employees know that we have their back. It's not going to be like, oh, you know what, well, maybe things are going to be a problem. So let me start firing a few people, um, you know, and then we'll see if we can just replace them. I don't want, I, we're trying to build a team where people want to work together and where they don't feel disposable as much as possible. As long as you do good work, you're, you're with us. We're going to have your back. You have ours. So, I'm not in a position where I want to let go of anybody right now. I understand if it's the difference is we, we forecasting out, we see that we're going to need to, or we're going to be in trouble and have to let go of, of really a lot of really good people. I will do that. I understand, you know, you have to do the right thing to keep the business alive. We're not at that point. So um, for us, like we've been, we've seen our buyers pull back drastically on acquisitions, but, uh, from in buying from us on our 
on our wholesale deals, but we've been buying at deeper discounts. We're still getting deals. We're not getting the same um, spreads on our assignment fees that we were before, but we're still getting deals. Business is still going. Um, so I'm not, I'm not really too worried. I'm actually, I think there's going to be huge demand for our wholesale deals at, at when things ramp back up. I think there's going to be massive demand. I think there's going to be pent up demand. So, um, and we do really, we do really, really well when um, there's a lot of demand from buyers. So, um, you know, and we've been kind of trying to tempt our buyers. We, we sell a property at a bit of a, dis, you know, a small assignment fee. We're sending out, we flooded them last week with like five different sold emails, just letting them know, hey, people are still buying stuff. This one sold, this one sold, this one sold, this one sold. You know, they might be selling at 20 grand under asking, but we're sending out those sold messages, get it, letting people know, hey, we've got these other properties. Get a move on if you want something because people are still buying and uh, trying to create a bit of that demand. So the focus right now is on Dispo. Our dispositions rep, she's done a great job of um, like the market for us before this COVID thing was just insane. People were fighting over our deals. We're getting multiple offers on pretty much all of our assignment deals. If it was a good deal, we were getting multiple offers. Now, so so her job before was how to maximize what we can get. When you have people beating down the door, how to manage all of those people, get the most motivated people in to view the property without you know, having 20 groups through knowing the seller because most of us are owner-occupied. Um, and then managing all those people to see who's willing to pay the most, bidding them up. That, that was our process until now. But now our buyers don't want to bid. They don't want to compete. So now we're trying to change what we've trained our buyers as training them, hey, come in, just make us an offer. Whatever it is, if you're going to bother analyzing the property, just make us an offer, even if it's below asking. Can't promise we can accept it or that we will accept it, but let's try to get that interest, get them into the door in the first place, because that's where, where we were struggling. So that's what we've been pushing on right now. And it's it's been a shift, a big shift in our dispo process. Acquisitions, we've changed to virtual calls um, for a lot of our appointments. Um, and then if we get close or we get it under contract, we then go in person to get our photos and videos. Um, but we're still, we're still buying lots of houses. Awesome. So I, I love the, what you started off, the how employees need to know that you have their back. So, um, and I, I totally agree with that. The, I, there's some folks in uh, either in our industry or other industries that are just like letting people go slashing overhead and expenses. And for me, the first call that I had with my team was um, let's celebrate, um, like we, we had this Inc. 5000 list in Florida come out and we were number seven in Florida on the Inc. 5000 list for growth for 2016 to 2018. And I called them all on the, on the call and they probably thought I was going to talk about coronavirus or something or, hey, the, the things have changed that we're going to be laying some people off or something like that. They showed up to this like announcement from the boss and I said, hey, you guys are doing an awesome job. Big pat on the back. We had a huge party on a Zoom call and that was it. They said, hey we're going to navigate this stuff together. I got you. Um, I'm really, you know, there's not any other people that I'd rather go into something like this with than the team that we have. I told my team, I said, we're no different two weeks ago than we are today. We're still the same rockstar team that we were two weeks ago. So don't ever forget that. And I'll tell them that every month that I'm on a call with them going forward is the marketplace may be uncertain and all these things, but I'm certain in your ability as, uh, as teammates and uh, what we can do together. So now we just have to figure out how to do it and how we navigate through this together. So I think that's really, really important. Um, so, and then I love that, that I pulled out, this, I wrote down sold emails and highlighted it because we used to send those. I feel like we've gotten complacent and lazy recently. You know, we've said, oh, we just sent an email out and there's 20 people that want to see it and everybody wants to pay over asking price. 
And um, we've gotten a little bit lazy and complacent on that stuff, on dispositions. dispositions. So we got to get proactive now about going out there potentially and, and do it. I saw, you know, we had some pretty good assignment fees come through today, in fact. So it's uh, nice to see that stuff's still moving. We're making some slight adjustments. So um, how, do, how do your employees feel about, about the business? Do they treat it like it's Luke's business and it's Luke's money and... Or do they treat it like a team? Like this is this is a community business that's operating and making us all money, so we're all chipping in and, and giving everything that we got. Um, I think I think people are see it as a little bit of like a family business. Um, there isn't that like oh it's it's corporate like let's just you know it just expense it whatever it's corporate. There isn't that, but. Um, I don't know that it may be the same buy-in that you have on your team where it's, you know, um, we're in this, this is our, our, our business. I don't know that we have the same buy-in that you do, but cause I see it with your people. I think certain people on the team really see this as like uh, certain people on my team, just either they've never made anything close to this much money in their life, or they've never enjoyed what they've done this much in our life. We have really fun people on our team. They really like talking to each other. Um, they really like working together. So. Nice. Yeah, I think I think the the, the turning point for me, and I, I felt like I, cause I always struggle with this. You know, as the business owner, you you talk about let's let's go, let's go, let's make more money, and like how much do you share behind the scenes with everybody else? Like, do you share the gross profit number? Do you share the expenses? Do you share all this stuff? And how open are you? And I always held that really close to my chest, the finance side of things, because it made me nervous. And I felt like when I actually did share like everything that we were doing, what we were making, some of the struggles and the wins that we had, um, whether it was personally or professionally in the company, what it did was it got their buy-in more. I think it's, it's our duty as the owners of the business to get our staff's buy-in as much as possible. Like as a visionary, like getting the team's buy-in is so, so important. And I think the more that we keep them like siphoned off or siloed or we don't share that stuff, then the more they feel like they're, they're kind of in the dark so when I let them all in and just basically showed them everything, even when we were struggling, like some of the bad months that we had, um, and then some of the good months that we had, it really kind of brought them in and, and gave the buy-in. So that's what I love is I, it's, it's, it hasn't become, it's not my business anymore. It's kind of like our business. It's like the company is separate from me. And I think when we do that, it allows us to, um, to really get, get them to, to understand things and treat the business like it's, like it is the one employing you. I'm not the one employing you. Like I'm like, hopefully they see if we actually have some struggles or some financial issues coming up that they might like individually have to take pay cuts and say, Hey, I'm willing to take a pay cut to keep the business going. They don't say, well, Bill, you just want me to take like make less money so you can make more money. That's not the, that's not the case at all. Like <laughs> we want to keep the business alive. Like the business is a totally separate entity. And I think once we start thinking that way, and we, if we believe that, then other people can start believing it. Because that was the struggle that I had uh, to get past, especially in times like right now. I, I wrote down, like, what are some things that you're thinking about? Because some of the things that I'm thinking about is having a contingency plan. If, if revenue goes down you know, 20%, 30%, a couple months in a row, I'm willing to dip into my pocket up to a point. And then there's going to be a point where I, I'm going to start having to make some, some, some tough decisions uh, inside the business, whether it's expenses, whether it's human capital, um, some of the staff, things like that. So that's, uh, that's the thing for me. Those are some of the things that I'm thinking about because I went into this 
it's interesting. Like three months ago, I was like, this is nothing. Like I'm not worried about this. And then it became like, hmm, this doesn't really feel that comfortable. And now it's, it's kind of like, well, we'll just kind of see how long this, this goes and how things go and what data I can collect and how, what adjustments I need to make. But I'm not making any like uh, adjustments without facts not these like what ifs, so I'm going to get ahead of it. I'm willing to, to calculate the risk and the reward down the road. And then if I have to dip in my pocket for a couple months, I just have to make sure that that's sustainable and it's comfortable for me as the owner. And the team is surely going to know, I'm going to tell them that I am making payroll out of my own bank account or the owner equity inside the company. Like the company is taking money that, that should be mine for all the risk and, and things that I've put up over the past few years to make payroll for this long. But after that, you know, we're going to have to make some tough decisions. So I'm assuming you got, you're doing some of the same things. Yeah. Some of it, um, like your, your thing about telling everyone, you know, gross profits and things like that. We've decided on our side that people who have a uh, control over it, control over gross profits who get paid based on it. They, they can, they, they will know what we're making on those. But for example, our lead intake team, they get a flat, bonus per contract that they, they set the appointment for. So uh, we decided not to share the amount of it. Um, and sometimes, you know, we've had a, a lot of large assignment fees. Um, I wouldn't want there, and I, again, your team might be different than mine, but I wouldn't want there to be any kind of like, oh, well, I, I got 200 bucks on this and you guys got a hundred thousand. Um, you know, <laughs> if we got a very large assignment fee, it shouldn't matter to them that, we're congratulating them, treating them on for getting the deal done, whether it's a thousand bucks or a hundred thousand on the assignment fee. Um, they're treated the same way for it. So that, that's how we've been on that. But then again, our acquisition reps, dispositions, much of our team does get it, you know, percentages of, of gross um, to some extent, and they will know what we're doing as gross. And um, part of the reason they get percentages on it as commissions because they have a way to influence it. They can they can affect it and therefore they should know what it is, what they're trying to affect um, and yeah. understand they're making more money when they do affect it. So, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, you know, I, I, so I, I was, I always struggle with that, especially with the, the person who's getting paid, let's call it $12 an hour and a hundred dollar bonus on a, on a transaction. And they see that we made $50,000 on, on the spread. Um, what I, what I, because I, I struggled with that for a really long time. And what I'll give anybody advice out there uh, who's listening is um, do what you're, you feel comfortable with and then grow into something more than that. Because I'd say for the first three or four years, I wouldn't even let anybody see the deal tracker. Like I was the only one that could see the deal tracker. That included all the assignment fees, all the, the flip fees, all that stuff. And I didn't, also didn't want them to know that we were you know, grossing $1.3 million. Like we just didn't have those as targets. That just wasn't something that anybody knew but me and the bookkeeper. And so as I got further along, what I realized was um, they don't, they, it's just seeing that, like they, at, it went from not seeing anything to then seeing me on stage and listening to me on podcasts and stuff like that and on my Facebook page. So they saw that we were a seven figure business. And so then it became, from seeing, not seeing any of it to saying, oh, we're making $2 million. I made $30,000 last year. What's up with that? They don't see any of the expenses, any of the overhead, all that stuff. So now I'm, I went from being like not transparent at all to being totally transparent. So now they see that we have a million-dollar payroll a year and we have, all, we have uh, so much expenses. And this month, we actually lost money. So like I actually lost money this month, but they got paid. So there's lots of different 
that I went from like one side of the spectrum to the other. And now everybody, I mean, I don't like flash up the PL every month for everybody to see on our monthly call. However, in our L10 meetings, and it does flow down to everybody else is, hey, we had we didn't have the best month, or we had a really good month, or we had this, and and then you know they'll see. I give them I give them like targets that every quarter, if we do this, then this will happen. Maybe our Christmas party, you'll get, you know, if if we hit this number this year, we'll have a fifty thousand dollar Christmas party, and it's pretty much all cash and gifts and stuff to them. So they have stuff to shoot for where they get to see the return on it. But we're we're definitely on the other end of the spectrum with transparency now, um, because I just feel and I feel like when they understand that and they see the risk that the business is taking and they see all these other things and it's unplugging me from the business, it allows them to, to work a little bit, work a little bit harder, understand the inner workings and really feel like they're a part of it. Like, I feel like that's, what's really allowed me to get the buy-in that I have. And so that's my recommendation for anybody out there is just kind of think about where you want to be and where you want to end up and it'll evolve over time. And some people are very open with their folks. Some people realize that, you know, uh, hey, maybe the person who makes 12 bucks an hour shouldn't see the, the bottom line of the company and all that stuff or, you know, how much you take home. And I can, obviously, there's certain people that uh, don't want to show their tax returns because <laughs> they see how much they make. So um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty open when it comes to all that stuff. You can ask anybody inside the mastermind group. I actually just did a presentation and showed uh, two months of my P&L. I showed my equity balance sheet and I showed uh, kind of the percentages of where all of our, um, people, our marketing, our overhead, all that stuff share. So I'm pretty open with it. Anybody can, can see what we make. And so for all the, all you guys that are out there, they're like, Oh, Bill only talks about his gross profit number. Well, I never know what your guys are actually making. Well, that's the only way you really can compare apples to apples in this business. In my mind, like a target doesn't show their, their entire balance sheet and, and, profit and loss statement, you know what size business they are. So you can kind of see that. So it's just, that's step one. And then we just dig deeper and, and, and talk about it. And I'm open to talk about all that stuff, uh, especially inside the national that we have. I think it makes a difference of what you focus on when, because like I'm still in growth mode. I'm focusing on gross profit right now and, and still incentivizing my employees on gross profit right now, because I'm trying to grow to a certain point um, in a certain number. I want to be to a certain number of markets. And then I want to focus on efficiency and improving our, our margin within that profit. But, you know, you can really, um, I think they say something like you can't save your way to financial independence, you know, and same thing in a business. If you make $50,000 a year, you'd be really great at cutting expenses, but how much can you really take home if your gross profit is 50000 a year? Whereas if you get your gross profit to, you know, millions of dollars, and then you focus on improving your, your efficiency and keeping more of that. Um, I, I think that's the way I've decided to do it. I, I think it makes sense. But anyways, that's my philosophy on it. Focus on growing the gross profit. As long as you're making money, even if the margin's a little smaller, our margin, our margin's not bad. But uh, once we get to a certain point, then it's going to be improving the efficiency, trying to keep the same gross profit number, but in, increasing our margin uh, so our net profit increases. Um, and I also want to say, you know, the, the transparency that you were talking about, one thing that was, uh, I wanted to make sure none of my employees would have a concern about was I've been telling employees for a while now, Corey, my COO is going to run my business. So, you know, you might be, I might be helping train you on this part or something like that, but you have to understand Corey is going to be involved in, in these decisions because he's going to be in charge of the business when I'm out of the day to day, I'll be around as an advisor, but I'm not, I'm not going to be in the day to day of the business. And basically letting them know that if they have a problem with that, then this isn't going to be the right company for them. 
because I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be there in the day to day. If they say, Oh, well, I don't, you know, that's not okay. You're just going to what have us work for you and sit on your ass at home. I mean, I'll be doing, I'm not going to see my ass all day, but that's, you know, the person needs to be okay with that. Same as you, you know, Nate's running the business, you own the business. People need to be okay with that. And if they're not, they're not going to be right fit. Yeah, I agree. And like the, the thing that if anybody's thinking about hiring a COO, that needs to be set up from the very beginning. You need to tell them they're coming in here so that you can go out. And because you don't want them to uh, resent you for that when they get, you get a year or two into that relationship and they're working 40, 50, 60 hours a week and you're working two. And, I mean, that was the agreement from the beginning. That's why you came in. That's why you've done it. Nate and I have had that conversation multiple times. And so, you know, think about that. And then the staff also, you know, you got to make sure that they have the right relationship with that person and um, they don't see you like, I always, we always talk about these like kind of end arounds where if, when mom says no, they go to dad or vice versa, you know, and it, ha- it, well, it happens a lot in the very beginning of bringing somebody on like that, any manager, any COO, anything like that. So, okay. I know um, we're kind of getting towards the end of our time. So um, I, like, I, I guess the biggest thing that, that, that I'm interested in is, is what do you, do you see like when, you're ramping up your business and you're growing and scaling this company, right? And then we have this kind of slowdown or this, this event that happened, right? And it's, it really hasn't slowed us a ton yet, but it has a potential to do that. And there's a lot of uncertainty. So when you felt this uncertainty, like where did your mind go? Did it go to opportunity or did it go to fear and why? I think I had, um, I think I had fear for a couple days. Maybe I had one of those, you know, a lot of Richie pity parties. Um, but, you know, I was watching, I think it was, you know, right around the time where it kind of hit everyone. Oh, wow. Okay. This is, this is something. I was like, what's going to happen? You know, and I was less worried about the wholesaling business as much as, you know, the rentals that we've kept where we have private, private financing as we finish renovations and things like that. I'm like, I want to make sure we can free up the capital there. Um, but so I, I think, I think it at first went to fear and now the longer I've been in it, I've been, I've been seeing that we're able to buy, we're going to be able to buy at better discounts. And when we get through this, I I just see an explosion. So um, I I see this as a temporary blip. I mean, if this was a different situation, like, you know, the start of the 2000, the the recession, 2008, different story. Um, Now people might in hindsight say, oh, well, maybe this is going to be another big recession as well. I don't think that's the case. this isn't a real estate problem. You know, this could affect the real estate market. I don't see this as a real estate problem. I think the way I see this, and the way I see the the buyer sentiment is that there's going to be a lot of demand for houses once they get a little more confidence in the market. And so I'm really excited for that because they're going to see that we've been going, our buyers are going to see that we've been going all through all of this. They're going to see that there's been big discounts and then they're going to start coming back in trying to get those big discounts. And they're going to start bidding up those prices and our assignment fees are going to go back to normal and maybe higher than normal. So um, I I see the opportunity long-term and right now for me, it's just, it's a matter of, I just want to break even over the next few months. I don't even care to make money. I'm not, I'm not worried. We'll we'll break even for a few months. And when this gets out of it, we're going to make a ton of money. Awesome. I like that. I like that attitude. I, um, yeah, I've been kind of, a foot on the gas through this. Um, I was in the same way. I just wasn't sure. Didn't think it was much. 
then I started saying, hmm, this is interesting. It feels a little bit, the uncertainty, I got kind of stuck in this like analysis paralysis mode, but just saying, look, I want to be the person who's still left standing. I saw a quote, you mentioned the pity party that Walter Bond shared at Flip Hacking Live. And he had, he had one post that I saw um, uh, recently that said, uh, the people who, like you keep going through this, you're going to come out and you're, you're preparing to come out bigger, stronger, then you went into it. And I said, that's exactly what we're going to do. Like, I want to continue through this, but let, let it wash some folks out. Um, unfortunately out of the marketplace, let's, um, let's keep the professionals doing what they're doing. I think it's a great time for the, the pros, the people who have been doing it for a while that have a team that can that have some cash that can withstand something for a while. You got the people who are just getting into it, who it's a great time to jump in, learn real estate, um, figure that out, have a side hustle, something going on. And then the people in the middle are kind of in that crunch that have to decide, like, can we push through this? Do we have to pull back a little bit? What does it look like? And through all that, we're going to determine kind of what, what shakes up. Uh, Andy and I talked about um, we were in Costa Rica. We talked about we're in the snow globe in real estate. Like uh, if you're any of you guys that have snow globe at Christmas time, you've got the, the peaceful house, the, the, uh, whatever it is inside of your snow globe and it's all peaceful. And then you shake it up and there's the blizzards flying around and everything's going crazy. And then you put it down and it just starts to settle again. So I feel like all the time there's problems that pop up and we're in the snow globe. We're just feeling like we're getting shaken around and that's kind of what it feels like right now. But don't worry, like at some point over the next month, two months, three months, that snow globe is going to be sat on the mantle and it's all going to calm down and then we can keep going the way that we're going right now. So um, I'm excited for it. I think there's going to be some opportunity. We live in the distressed world. So I, the way I say it a lot of times is the houses aren't getting any distressed any more than they normally do every single day. Houses take time to get distressed. People can get distressed really, really fast. So we operate in two worlds, the distressed houses and the distressed people. And I do think, unfortunately, that there is going to be a lot more distress in the marketplace, but it gives us the opportunity to be there to help more people through their distressful, their distress and all the problems that they're having. And that's really the, the job that we're in. That's what we do. We're, we're people problem solvers. We just help the people. And so if, if the stress is on the rise, the unemployment increases, credit scores go down, things like that, we're starting to see that we can help folks in, in distress. And if we can, we can solve the problem, then we have the opportunity to add more value to the marketplace, make more money and create more business. So um, that's what I'm excited for, uh, helping more people and, and figuring out how to do that. And any problem, I don't know, problem solver, problem solving was one of the six traits and I love a good problem, a good puzzle, a good, like move the cheese. I want to go figure out where it is and I want to be the first one to it. So we're working on that right now. And I'm happy to be kind of connected with you because we're all able to do this together. Like Luke, I can understand what you're doing. We can talk to all the other members of the mastermind group and try to figure it all out together and not have to feel isolated and on our own during a time like this where we can, obviously we just came out of a two day mastermind meeting where we're trying to lift each other up and, and figure out what's working and what's not working and give presentations on all these different things to help us in our market um, and our business. So uh, it's a really great time to be kind of plugged into a network, network like that, in my opinion. So um, let's see, before we go, um, I want to just talk about Flip Hacking Live real quick because that's where you came uh, in, you came to Flip Hacking Live, you saw that it wasn't uh, the flipper flop uh, kind of uh, people that aren't doing it. You mentioned it's like real people that are actually in the business right now, which I pride myself on the fact that, you know, I'm running a business just like you guys. And that's where, I mean, all of the people that are, you know, that the real time information, real time data, all those folks are, you know, helping inside the mastermind group, which I'm very thankful for. Um, but 
Like, what would you say to anybody who's thinking about going to this event? I know uh, my hope is that um, we come out of this thing, people are going, oh man, they, they want something to, to like, to reach towards like October comes and they're ready to come down to Orlando. They're ready to come to an event like this. And um, we've been cooped up in our house or haven't been able to socialize. And it's almost like that carrot that you can dangle in, in, in the future to say, I, I got something to look forward to. And it gives us that push that we can, uh, can keep moving. So I don't know. What, what do you think about the event? And, and then what would you say to somebody who's kind of on the fence about coming? Well, so I'd start with, you know, one of the reasons I was cautious to even go in the first place was, I hate that, you know, I don't want to pay, fly to, well, I was at, in, in San Diego at the time. I don't want to pay to fly to, in San Diego, pay for a hotel, and then just spend, you know, several days getting pitched at. I hate that. Um, there was actually an event in Toronto uh, end of last year that was advertised as like not a sales pitch, just going to be great real estate knowledge. And it was just pitching from stage the entire time. And it just frustrates me so much. You know, it's run to the back of the room and sign up for this course and, you know, your pain to go to one of those events, those are terrible. So the big thing I would say for anyone who had that mindset, like me, who saw those kind of things is this is, this is not at all a pitch fest. Um, I think you what spend one of the days you spend maybe half an hour just explaining what the groups are and giving people a chance. The entire rest of it has no sales pitch. It's here's, here's what different people are doing. Like, the set last the, the last year I went the most recent one uh, Ryan Smith's elite Smith I mean that was genius I I don't take a lot of notes I took so many notes from that I taken so many ideas and there's so many of those things I can't even do in Canada but it's the I actually don't think enough of, of you guys are looking at the different opportunities when uh, everyone's trying to do the same thing you don't realize the opportunities you have when you go into that blue ocean and you're not competing with people and you take ideas like Ryan's and just dive into this, this blue ocean. There's nobody else competing with you. You can get bigger wholesale fees because there's, there's nobody competing with you on the same deals. You don't show up and there's 30 other postcards there, you know, for example. So there's um, mixing in those strategies, learning from different people. Um, you know, uh, Chris and Heather Logan there with their giant phone talking about how they're, you know, these are, these are real people, how they're actually doing it. You know, they're, they're doing uh, mostly cold calling for all of their leads and they, they went through it, how they're doing it. So, you're going to go there. You're going to learn. It, it is, that's very much an event. That's like drinking from the fire hose. Here's like a ton of really successful people. Here's how they're doing it. Um, here's useful tips from them. And if you don't take away like a dozen different useful things that are going to make you money, you're really not listening. That's, that's about it. So I, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm obviously going to be there um, this year in October, assuming everything's back to allowing it, which I expect it will be. I hope it will be. Um, I'm, I'm really happy I went. So again, I was nervous because I thought it'd be a sales pitch. When I got there, I was just, I was, I actually remember I went with another friend from Canada and he was like, Luke, calm down. Cause I was like giddy with excitement because at home I go to these readers and I'm doing the most volume and it's almost, it's kind of, uh, it was kind of boring in a way. It's like, I want to be around these higher level people doing more. And I was so excited to be there and everyone I'm talking to and, you know, they're really doing this stuff. They understand it. They're really doing it. They're really doing volume. They're really considering these problems on how to scale, how to grow, how to make more money um, that, that I wasn't experiencing at all, like in my local readers, my local meals. I wasn't seeing that. So I was thinking back to my first one. I was giddy with excitement. 
Uh, my friend was telling me, just stop, just look, calm down, just take it easy. <laughs> yeah, well, I remember meeting you at that one. You were definitely ramped up. You were excited. You were pumped. And uh, you were unforgettable because you were going around talking to everybody, trying to suck as much information out of each of us as you possibly could. And um, I think that's like when you go to one of these events, that's, that's your job. Like get, go there, get as much information as you can. And like you said, this past year, like we set it up such that um, even in the first two or three presentations, you should have 10 times the value from the ticket price and your travel and all that stuff. Just, you know, just Ryan, you nailed it. Ryan Smith's presentation. I was in the back of that thing, just going, just, I got notebooks full from him too. So he he really brought it and we're going to do the same thing this year. So I'm excited to see you there. I'm excited to hear about uh, your new baby uh, there. So um, I, that's how, how, how much longer, um, how much longer do you have? June, so, you know, two months, end of June, man, you guys are going to be in a different world. Um, your life, your life will change for the better, but you'll never be the same person again. I'll tell you that. I remember, uh, when I had, we had will, I just, I can't even explain that feeling to anybody who doesn't already have a child. So, um, it's really hard to explain, but you'll, you'll know, you'll call me up right afterwards and say, um, I know what you mean now, like just looking at my child's eyes for the first time, just seeing that this is something that, that, that I helped create. is just an amazing feeling and you, you will you be totally boys. different. You have three boys. I have, I have three boys, uh, five and under right now. So yeah. yeah we're having a girl. So yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know that feeling at all. Uh, I, I couldn't take care of a girl. I'd have no idea what they're like. Um, but, um, I really, I really think you're in for a whirlwind. You've, they've, She's going to have a great future with you guys. You've got an awesome heart. You're um, two incredibly smart and amazing people. And uh, she's, she's really lucky to have you guys. So um, good luck. That's going to be awesome. I can't wait to hear about it. I can't wait to, uh, to send her a little onesie from us and, um, and see you guys hopefully at Flip Hacking Live. And uh, oh, yeah, you can bring your kids. So bring your kids down. It's outside of Orlando. I'm bringing mine. We're going to go to uh, Disney for the week after. And I'm confident. I, we work on, I start working on this about seven and a half months in advance of the event. So I'm already about a month and a half into the preparing, the planning. I've got a meeting uh, this week on uh, the agenda, the, day, the daily schedule and stuff. So we're working hard. We're putting in the time and effort into this already. And I'm really excited about it. I can't wait to, uh, to roll out uh, what we've got planned for you guys. I've got a couple cool surprises in order already. So um, you can go to fliphackinglive.com and grab a ticket. Uh, we do kind of adjust the prices on like a sliding scale. So depending on when this comes out, they go up over time as we get closer to the event and we start selling out an, an amount of tickets. Um, there'll probably be about, hopefully about a thousand other real estate investors there this year that you can network with, you can share ideas with from all over the country. Outside the country, we have some guys that come from South Africa. They're probably the furthest travelers. And then uh, obviously Canada, Mexico, we've got a lot of people from kind of around North America. So really exciting event, um, three days of packed uh, information, and I'd love to see you there. Uh, so you can go to splitpackinglive.com, grab your tickets. In or it's in Orlando, October 15th through the 17th. So hope to see you guys there. And again, like Luke said, it's not a pitch fest, it's value and content. And like he said, we kind of, we do open the opportunity to come join our mastermind group, but it is a short period of time. And it's not a big hard sell of, uh, of why you should join. It's just, you know, if it's for you, great. Um, if you're like Luke, you're ready to uh, stroke a check for $40,000 to jump into the eight-figure group the first day. And, um, and that's it. It's, uh, I, I promise I won't charge you that much money this year. So um, come to the event and uh, I hope to see you guys there and uh, go to fliphackinglive.com and check it out. Luke, thank you so much for spending time with us. I know we went a little over. 
this was, a t I, I just couldn't, you know, so much stuff like hiring, onboarding, lessons learned, uh, some of the coronavirus stuff, especially for like bigger teams, bigger staff. Like, what are we doing? As you can see, he's got 17 people, I've got 15. And uh, we still have the same number of people on the payroll. In fact, we hired three more people recently inside my company off 100% commission because we, we have a plan and we're sticking to our plan. And I've, I, I don't see any reason not to personally. But again, you know, judge your risk tolerance. Risk taking was another one of the six uh, characteristic traits of being an entrepreneur. And we're like really heavy in, in taking risks, risk and reward balance those things out, but I'm going to, I'm going to keep pushing. I'm going to be the guy that's out in the shrimp boat, like Forrest Gump. And I'm going to be weathering the storm while everybody else's shrimp boat is on the, uh, on the, on the dock getting crushed through the storm, hopefully. So that at the end I can go bigger, badder, stronger than I came into it. And I can take over my share of the marketplace. And like Luke said, you know, suck in all that opportunity and make bigger assignment fees, make more money on the back end. So Luke, thanks for spending some time with me. I really appreciate it. Tell Jess, I said, hi. Um, I miss you guys. I hope to see you in person very, very soon. So thanks, man. Thanks so much, Phil. Thanks so much for having me. See ya. You've been listening to the Seven Figure Flipping Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, go to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. If you're ready to learn the house flipping and wholesaling strategies that are working right now in today's market, check out sevenfigureflipping.com. 